That's so fun. As this room starts to fill up, as, as folks are coming back in from all their, their summer travels, uh, I was just struck sitting in the front listening to this chorus of little voices that was coming somewhere from right in here, uh, all singing uh, to the Lord. So really fun to be here this morning. Uh, thankful to be with you. My name's Jeremy. I'm the assistant pastor here, and um, I'm going to tell you a story. Here we go. Uh, you probably have heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor and author and theologian in Germany around the time of the Nazi regime. Many pastors and churches had kind of acquiesced during that time and kind of rolled over and kind of gone along with, with Hitler's agenda and with sort of that Third Reich thing. And those churches were allowed to stay open. But for those that more and more were resistant, like Bonhoeffer's, to the whole idea that they were purporting, it began to be more and more difficult for those churches to stay uh, both, I mean, in some ways, to stay alive, to stay open, uh, and for pastors to continue to meet every Sunday with their people. In 1934, many of those churches and seminaries that were kind of the resistors of this movement were shut down. And in the wake of that, Bonhoeffer decided, and he'd always, always had kind of this dream in his mind, and he took this as an opportunity to start his own seminary. The goal of this seminary was twofold. It was not only theological training, but it was also theological living. Because our orthodoxy is only as good as it comes out in our orthopraxy. And so what he noted is that he wanted to both create a culture of learning, but also a culture of living life together one with another. The goal was then to export these pastors who had this new vision of both living a lifestyle of ministry and to export those guys across uh, both Germany and across Europe. Unfortunately, his dream only lasted three years. From 1935 to 1937, uh, I'm going to totally butcher this, but Fink Finkenwald, maybe? There's an E on the end, but I think you don't say it. Uh, on September 8th, 19, September 28th, 1937, the Gestapo closed it. And just a few years after that, if you know the story, or if you're smarter than me and you've read the biography that's this thick, you know that he was martyred uh, for those same beliefs that he continued to stand up for. What's unique, though, about a story that existed that long ago for us today is that he knew what it was like to live in a politically, socially, morally divided time like ours. We exist in many of those same tides, not to the same extreme, but we exist in much that same sphere today. Christian community then for him was important. It was as important as the theology that informed it because it was the very thing that was going to exist as this stark contrast to everything else that was going on around this stark contrast to this culture of selfishness and death that was taking over Germany at the time. And in his book, Life Together, he kind of sums his experience up. And if I could take one sentence out of that to sum it up, he says this. Jesus lived in the midst of his enemies. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. Now, he knew that as one who was legit. 
He lived in the thick of foes even unto his death. This, how, this wasn't just something that, you know, oh, hooray for Bonhoeffer, if I could only be like him. No, really, this is just an echo of all the way back to Jesus and the way that he encourages his people to live a life following him is an echo of the way that Bonhoeffer was living. And what's fun is, in the passage we're about to read, there's a prayer of Jesus to the church to come. And so in a sense, we could say that what Bonhoeffer did is an answer to Jesus's prayer for him all those thousands of years before. So in order to do that, Buckle your seatbelts. We're reading John 17, verses 13 through 21, and I believe Adrian Pedersen is going to come up and read that for us. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. You sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me throughout through their word, that they may, be all, they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you to continue to pray for us. Uh, and we know that the truth of what your scripture says is that even right now, as we are praying to you, you are also interceding, praying on our behalf to the Father. You're taking every bit of what we bring to you and cleaning it up in such a way that it, it perfectly exists and reflects the will of the Father. And then you give that to us, everything we need. So we pray this morning for courage to look at this passage, courage to look at ourselves, uh, courage to look at this world that you've put us in, uh, and the courage to follow you as you're calling us to live. And we pray all this in Christ. Amen. So did you see it there? Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying, saying, for all of these disciples that are gathered around right now, as they go out and share this good news across the globe, I'm praying for all of them. I'm praying for the church that is going to be built in their wake and in their midst. And in that sense, he's praying for us. So this is a prayer from Jesus to you. It's easy, though, when life gets hard and when the world seems hostile to just kind of bury our heads in the sand and put our arms around each other. And, uh, you know, colloquially, this is called the holy huddle. It's very easy to do the holy huddle thing with church. I don't want to endanger my kids. I don't want to endanger my morals. I don't want to endanger maybe even physically my life more and more uh, as the world that we live in continues to get more and more hostile to the gospel. Very easy, very natural kind of fight or flight things that happen inside of us. But what Jesus is saying is this is the exact time that I made you for. 
This is the exact culture that I made you for. And he was praying for us way back then that this would be the time that this group of people would exist in this place for the sake of this mission. The Christian community then that we experience together is our safety net. It is to go all the way back to the image that Dave gave us when we first kicked off this series as ambassadors for Jesus, as we go out there and get kicked around all the time and get hurt, you know, and get, and the struggle of living in this world that is hostile in many ways to the Jesus that we love. We come back in here and we have that sense of like, okay, these are my people. They know me. I know them. We can exist together in this safety net, but here's what that safety net is supposed to do it is supposed to encourage you to pick your head up and go back out those doors again and not go back out those doors alone. But in that community that now exists between us and that is continually being built by the spirit among us, that is the community that we are meant to reflect to the world that there's something good. There's good news happening here. There's good news happening around what we read in these words and in these pages. And more and more people, Lord willing, are drawn into that kingdom life and into that good news. So I want to introduce an idea to you that we'll spend the next little bit um, exploring together through this passage. It's the idea of church as missional community. And I just want to spend uh, our time really focused on those two words. First, we're going to talk about life and community, because that one kind of comes first in the passage, and then feeds the other one, life on mission. So life in community and then life on mission. One of the things that is uh, especially helpful for us to know as we approach this passage, as we jump into the middle of John 17 is from John 14 to John 17, there's this giant parentheses that's happening. And it's almost as if time completely almost comes to a standstill. There's this slow motion movement of just probably a couple of hours of Jesus's life. The end of John 13 ends with him washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. And then in John 18, the narrative picks back up with Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane as Judas runs out and gets all the guys who are going to come back with torches and pitchforks and bring him off to captivity. And in this little window of these few hours together, the narrative completely slows down and we get to see the details of Jesus's heart and the amount of narrative that's packed into this, the amount of teaching that's packed into this little section is monumental as you look across the gospels at some of the, the ways that the, um, the text captures the words of Jesus and his teaching. And so whatever he says here, as he's in between his, as more and more of his followers are starting to deny him, he's in between the Last Supper where he's serving them bread and wine and washing their feet and the few hours later in which he will be brought to the cross or the process of that will begin. Whatever he says here has got to be real important. Especially, not only whatever he says, but whatever he prays has to be even more important. And that's what we find ourselves in today. He prays for us. He starts off verse nine. He says, I am praying for those that you have given me, talking to his father. So he's praying for the church collectively. Like I said, he's praying for us today. And what does he pray? Jump to verse 15. He says, I want you not to take them out of the world. 
I want you to keep them in the world, Father. There is a purpose and intention in my heart that they are the fulfillment of. But here's what I need you to do for them, Father. Please, will you keep them from evil? Because Jesus knows, and the Father knows, and the Spirit living inside of us knows our consistent temptation to pull away and pull out and pull up from the the works that we are meant to do, from the temptation to just live our life in this happy, comfortable way instead of following in the narrow road of Jesus. Our temptation to gossip instead of encourage, our temptation to lust instead of love, our, our temptation to grow bitter instead of forgive. In every one of us, there is that weakness, there is that struggle, there is that sin that still lives inside, even of the strongest believer, and won't go anywhere until Jesus comes back. There is consistent movement as he prays, sanctify them, grow them, Father. But the seed of that still exists inside of our hearts. And you would think, though, that that would be the very thing that would make the church almost an impossibility. You would think that Well, okay, if what Jesus is saying is I'm assembling a bunch of wrecked people and I'm going to put them all together in a room once a week and I'm going to let them live life and rub up against each other in small group and other things during the week, that would have no chance, it seems. And in many ways, this is hard. Living in community with the church is difficult. But if you take a little more wisdom from John as he writes in 1 John 1, which is the same John who's writing these words here, he kind of pieces some of these things that Jesus is saying, and he makes this statement. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. He's saying, no, your sins and struggles are not the things that detract you from other people. It can actually be the thing with the Spirit's help that draw you close together. Another way to say it might be this. There is one thing and one thing only that every person who calls this church its home, their home, can have in common. And that one thing is that we are sinners in need of grace and saved by Jesus. We are sinners in need of grace and saved by Jesus. And if that is the one thing that we can have in common, then there is something that any wrong done one to another There is something that can be done with that that any other relationship might not have a category for. There is something unique about our sins and struggles that can actually be the thing as we walk in the light, as we're real with each other about who we really are and what we really struggle with and the week that we just had and we don't just come in this room and put on a smile and fake it till we make it. And many of us know this that desire for authenticity that lives inside of many of us. If someone would just be real with me, I know I feel this way, but I must be the only one. Nobody else could feel as messed up inside as I do. And to come around a small group of yours and sit in a circle and go, I struggle with this. And to have somebody across the circle say, me too. And the first the girl next to you say, well, I kind of struggle with this. And now the person across from her go, yeah, me too. There's a unique kind of community that forms in the wake of consistently being connected by our commonality of needing Jesus. Now then there's two ways that that can go sideways. Uh, One is self-righteousness and the other is others' righteousness. As self-righteousness, when we forget that we're sinners, 
then we've broken the one thing that binds us together, which is super easy to do. So there's something, uh, if you've been around uh, church world, especially in our sort of spheres, which are very intellectual, it is very easy to get in this sort of self-righteous posture, especially early on in faith. I wrecked a good number of relationships when I first came to faith. I was the party guy. And then almost immediately after coming to faith, I became the finger wagger at all the party guys. Like what? What am I thinking? But there's just something inside of the human heart that when we, like, when we first get this, it's like, oh, yes, it all makes sense now. And now everybody else is stupid because I know this and you don't. My heart did that. And it just naturally went there. So there's a name for this. It's called cage stage. What it means is, when you're in this type of, of a mentality, just all of your church people, just put them in a cage, let them live for three to four months and kind of, you know, detox off of that self-righteousness and then come back into the real world and the real life of the church so they don't wreck too much. I wrecked a couple things along the way. And some of those things I'm still working on repairing. So there, there is a real self-righteousness that can grow when we believe we have all the right answers and everyone else doesn't. Secondly, we can, if, if we forget not only that we're sinners, but if we forget that everybody else in the room is also a sinner, we can be, begin to create this narrative in our minds of what community should look like. We can have this idyllic picture of if only my church did this, if only my church looked like this. And it, you know, it's like the Friday nights and the patio lights and all the fun food and everyone's laughing. Ha, 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 life is so great. And then like, but then you see that happen on Instagram and you're not invited. That's right. <laughs> That's how you feel too. Uh, there is that sense of like, I thought it was going to be this way and then I got slighted or I got hurt or somebody said something uh, that really hurt me or maybe I said something out of my mouth that I was like, oh no. And then, you know, things are awkward between me and this other person now. There's all kinds of relational rub and struggle that we can have with each other, especially when we, <laughs> when we covenant and commit to live life rubbing up against each other consistently in our everyday lives. There's a lot of ways that we can do this wrong. When we forget that we are sinners and when we forget that we're in a room of sinners, we can go haywire. And this is how division and factions and infighting and political games inside of churches can happen is when we try to force community to look a certain way instead of living very open-handedly with whatever the Lord is doing and whatever shape the Lord is taking our community together. Even using those opportunities when we have been wronged or when we wrong as those are the very things that Jesus may be using to make this community stronger, not break it apart. That's the opportunity that's before us as we live this open-handed way in community. But it's, it's very easy. If you've been at this church thing for a while, you know how difficult this is. You know the reality of trying to consistently show up and be with other people. Some of them are easy to be around. Some of them are hard to be around. Some of them you click with. Some of them you don't click with. Some of them you've been hurt by. Some of them you have hurt. And all of those things, it gets very difficult to live in Christian community. Verse 19, Jesus says, for their sake, talking to us, for Midtown Creve Hall's sake, 
I consecrate myself. That they also may be sanctified in the truth. You know what that word consecrate means? It's the idea of being set apart. And remember the context. Jesus is walking to the cross. He is moments away from being arrested and the rest of his life being brought to a short and quick end. And he's saying, this is why I came. I came and I am setting myself apart. That word consecrate is the exact same word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the Passover lamb or the sacrificial animal that was set apart for the sacrifice of the sins of the people. Jesus is saying, this is why I came to be a sacrifice for their sins because they will not be able to make it on their own. They will not be able to have this kind of community on their own. They will not be able to live up to my ideals and this thriving life that I've built inside of them on their own. They're gonna need my help. In fact, they're gonna need me to do everything for them. And in the only way that we are going to be safe enough internally to be real with somebody else is to experience that safety, not first with whoever's sitting across from me, but to experience a safety between me and the Lord. Can you this morning, without a doubt, confidently say, I believe that when God looks at me, he smiles? Or is there a question in your mind? How can that question be answered? If what Jesus is saying is true, that he came consecrating himself, setting himself apart to die, that the very thing he came to do was to live the life that you should have lived and to die the death that you should have died, there is a safety in which you can now say, I am confidently saying Jesus was punished for all of the ways I should have been punished. And now I get all the benefits that he should have gotten and instead gave to me. And there is a glorious safety that can begin to come over us as we are settled in that confidence that because of the work of Christ, God looks at me and he smiles. And that means when you're being a knucklehead, I can look at you and smile. And when I'm being one, you can look at me and smile. And in that kind of a safety, real community gets built. Now, that's different. That's different than the world we live in. That's different than what I thought Christianity was. When I was in, I have said this before, but I'll tell sort of a snippet of the story again. Um, I didn't become a Christian until later in life. Uh, I was a junior, going into my junior year at the University of Georgia, and I, I went back to UGA that semester more spiritually curious than ever. And part of it was because I felt all of this lingering guilt inside of myself and I didn't know what to do with it. Because if God wasn't real, then why did I feel so much guilt about doing bad stuff? And yet God began to draw me in. And, you know, so part of my story is I was a YMCA camp counselor. I've said this before, and I was kind of living this double life between camp counselor, you know, happy Jesus guy and then being, you know, UGA party guy. And those two things existed as separate lives for a while until they didn't. And then going into my junior year, those things finally started to collide with each other. And I went back going, I've got to figure out what I believe. 
And so the way I thought about it was, I should probably start going to church and maybe there's some kind of campus ministry or something I could be a part of. Uh, where should I go? Let's see. Um, Baptists? No, they're scary. Uh, uh, Presbyterians? No, nah, they're boring. Um, Methodists? They seem nice. So I, I went to, I found the, the Methodist Student Union on campus uh, that's called Wesley Foundation. Wonderful ministry. And I sat in the back. My first, uh, it was a Wednesday night at eight o'clock. And I, I sat there by myself. And this dude came up and sat next to me. And a tall dude, cool, long hair, like just super, like the guy that everybody will want to be friends with, super deep voice. And he comes and sits next to me. He's like, hey. Except he sounded cooler than that because his voice is cooler than mine. Um, he's like, hey, I'm Justin. And I introduced myself. Hey, you know, it's like your first time. I was like, yeah, it's my first time. I'm just, I don't know, I'm just kind of, you know, figuring this thing out. And, uh, you know, and so he was cool and normal and didn't try to like, you know, teach me the whole Bible in five seconds or anything. And he just was with me. And at the end of that night, or it may have been, you know, a couple of, a couple of weeks later, all that's kind of blurry. Somewhere in there, he said, hey, would you want to come to a small group that I run? And I was like, what's a small group? And he's like, well, you know, it's this thing. We kind of get together and talk about what's really going on in our lives, pray for each other or whatever. I was like, okay. So I show up. And it's, we sit in, you know, a circle and we do the thing that all of our small groups do. Hey, how's it going? What's going on in your life? What's really going on? And being a group of just guys, we got into like, this is what's really going on. This is where I'm really struggling. This is where I'm really failing. Actually, it got to the point where uh, we were able to get so real with each other that one of the guys went downtown to a bar one night and got drunk and got in a fight. And we all get the call from Justin, hey, I'm coming by your dorm, get in the car, we're going to rescue our buddy. And so we literally go hop in the car together, drive downtown, where this guy's in like this loft thing, he's bleeding, he's crying, he's sad, he feels guilty for what he did, and, uh, and we're praying for him in this uh, sort of upper room thing, loft in this bar. <laughs> and a, a different, I tasted a different kind of culture than I'd ever tasted before. I tasted a different kind of community than I ever had before. And the funny thing was, I was the mission. Justin knew what he was doing all along, calling me to be a part of this other life, this other lifestyle, this other kind of community that I had never experienced before began to rub off on me. And over the course of that semester, I began to believe maybe Jesus is who he said he is. And maybe he really did for me what I couldn't do for myself. That's the power of inviting other people into this kind of otherworldly community that cannot be found anywhere else. Because in a cancel culture, in a, in a culture where you can say one wrong thing and your entire career can be over, what if there was a place that someone could come and completely be themselves and be completely honest about who they are, of course, in appropriate and safe ways? What if there was a place where that could happen and the minute you open your mouth and say something that somebody else didn't like, you didn't immediately get canceled and wiped off. That's the church. That's what the church is being sanctified in truth to be. We're not always there. We're going to mess that up too. But that's the goodness of what he is calling us to continue to conform ourselves more and more to Jesus as the one who ate with tax collectors and sinners. So we continue to do the same thing. So, what does that mean? Verse 21, he says, I ask that all of them may be one. 
so that they may believe that you have sent me. And so there is this community apologetic that our unity together, the uniqueness of what this community can be as the spirit continues to build it up by faith. That there is something about that that the watching world, as we just live that way, like we don't have to do anything spectacular, just be following Jesus with other people together and see what conversations come up with your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and your family. Like it's so helpful, Paul's advice, when he says, just be ready for an answer. No, I'm sorry, it's Peter. To just be ready for an answer for the hope that you got. Whenever somebody asks, just be ready to tell them about Jesus. You don't have to go knock on their doors. You don't have to go, you know, beat them with a Bible. Just, just be ready. When your community witness, when your life looks so different that someone else looks at it and goes, I, I want what you got. Can you tell me more? It takes so much of the fear out of what evangelism can be. Okay, so here's what, uh, here's what we're going to do. Every small group leader, I feel like Oprah right now, look under your chairs. Uh, just kidding. But we have, given, we have given each one of your small group leaders, which small groups are about to start up here in a month. We're going to say a little bit more about that um, as we close out the service. But we've given each one of your small group leaders $300. You can find that under your chairs in an envelope right now, smarter players. <laughs> this is what we're asking. Over the next three months, in your small group, would you dream and pray and then execute one community outreach event that is very natural, that is very much like what you guys already do. It could be anything from a block party to a game night to a bourbon tasting to a service project for a local ministry, whatever. But the goal of that would be you're intentionally creating a space where 50% of those that are attending do not believe in Jesus. And just trying to put some traction to if this is what Jesus says, what would it look like for us to actually try to live that out collectively together? And small groups is one of the easiest places where we can put some application to that. So I invite you as you dream, uh, even in your seat about what that might be, or as you are totally freaked out right now, which may be many of us as well. Um, let's trust Jesus and just see what he does. Again, you don't have to have all the right answers. You don't even have to know what to say. Jesus says the spirit will give you the words when you need them anyways. But to put ourselves faithfully in front of other people who don't know him in community, Jesus says there's something magical about that. So um, there is a, there's a pastor named Hugh Halter who I really appreciated the way that he describes what it is that this community of faith is supposed to be about. And this kind of brings it all the way back around to where we started. If the gospel is good news, then the goal of our life together should be good news to other people. And so a question to ask would be, is my life, is there anyone who experiences my life as good news? because I'm following Jesus? Is there anyone who experiences our church as good news because of our life together and our output into the community? He gives a, a specific acronym, which everybody loves a good acronym, especially pastors. Uh, and it's the acronym BLESS. And this is super helpful just as we think about what is Jesus asking us to do? How could we do this in our everyday lives? Begin with prayer. Listen. Eat serve, and then share your story. So begin with prayer. 
consistently saying, Holy Spirit, where do you want me to go today? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to interact with? Is it that across the street neighbor? Is it that coworker? And as you're engaging with somebody, listen to them. Don't start off by talking. You'd be amazed at how many people have not had anybody listen to them. And when you give them the opportunity, you never know what might flow out. Eat. There is a, a biblical priority to there's something unique about when we eat together, the kind of relationship that gets built. So as you're listening to someone, you're eating with them, you're asking them to go to lunch, you're having coffee with them, you're grabbing a beer with them after work, you might hear ways that they could be served. Maybe they've just lost a loved one and could use a meal train. Maybe they are uh, just broke their arm and they can't push their mower up their giant hills around here. There's so many hills around here. I'm from Florida. It's really hard to mow grass. Uh, whatever it is. And then you may have an opportunity to serve them. And then finally, as you build that relationship, there might be an opportunity where they say, hey, what? Like, what makes you do all this? What makes you care about me? What makes you, like, your life and your family and your friendships and your church? Like, I just never see anything like it. And then you have the opportunity to share the story of how Jesus has impacted you, that he might do the same in somebody else. So that would be one kind of tangible way to apply what it is that Jesus is talking about today. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Would Creve Hall and the broader South Nashville area experience the good news of Jesus from the good news that we live in our community. Let's pray. So Father, we need you. Our experience of what you call us to do and how scary it feels is very consistent. That you most often had people that just looked at you completely sideways. I pray that you'd help us to get it. I pray that you would help us uh, to have the courage to follow you into the unknown adventurous places that you're calling us to. Uh, there really is a beautiful world that you have made and love and are reclaiming for yourself. Like that Revelation 21 picture. Come Lord Jesus, bring your kingdom from heaven to earth as you taught us to pray. Bring your kingdom to bear in this school, amongst these teachers and this faculty, amongst the students that walk in and out of this, these halls every day. Uh, bring your kingdom to bear up and down Trousdale and up and down Hogan. Bring your kingdom to bear on Edmonds and Pike at Nippers Corner, uh, on Franklin Avenue and everywhere else, on Nolensville Road. Lord Jesus, would you come? And would you use this group of people? You said, I'm going away and I'm leaving the keys with them. Thank you for trusting us. Even more so, thank you for continuing to be at the helm of our lives by your Spirit's power. Encourage us as we follow hard after you. Forgive us where we fall short. Thank you for your love always. We pray in Christ. Amen.